This is the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tech fan number 46 with Tim Robertson and a special guest. Who could it be? And it's tech fan number 46, like I said 30 seconds ago. And this is a little bit different episode. Usually I'm at the home studio recording, and I'm sure you can already hear the difference once the music kind of fades away completely. It's a little bit echoey in here. doesn't quite sound the way it usually does, and that's because I'm recording this at the Mac Specialist office in uh, the Chicagoland area. This is our Villa Park facility. I've recorded here before. Um, maybe, I don't know, five, six months ago with Kevin Shea in the same office. And that was fun, and it worked real well. We used the same microphone, but this time we've got a different guest, and it is another Mac specialist like me. If you guys remember last week, we were talking about feedback that we got on the subject of video games, and the feedback came from Frank from Mac Specialist. David read it. And, uh, hey, why not follow up a, a good email and have... The man himself, Frank Lambert, right here in the in the makeshift studio. I'm trying to adjust my chair here and sit on my leg. I'm a leg sitter. Are you a leg sitter? No, I've never been able to do that. Really? When I was a little kid, um, the, the the doctor that my parents took me to was convinced that kneeling was a bad thing. Really? He just was like anti kneeling altogether. So I've <laughs> always been like, you know, don't don't sit on your leg, don't kneel, any of that stuff, just from from being a little kid. So no, I'm not a leg sitter. I, I don't know why I like it, but I always tend to tuck w- at least one leg up underneath me. Yeah, no, my dad, uh, my dad sits the same way. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, like I said, from from being a little kid, he was like, no, no. You're legs grounded there. in reality. You've always got two feet <laughs> two firmly feet. planted. That's right. On the ground, ready to escape at any time. So, what is I know obviously, but what is your official title at Mac Specialist? I am the senior engineer here at uh, Mac Specialist. Now that doesn't mean you're like older than everybody else. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't mean I'm older. <laughs> than everybody else, although I sort of am. Um, it just means that I deal with the higher end of the technology spectrum that Mac Specialist deals with. I think of everybody here, uh, obviously we have one gentleman who's older than both of us, but then I think it goes me and then you, age-wise. I think that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, yeah. you're kind of a child of the 80s like I am. Um, yeah. Yeah, I am. Uh, uh, I'm... Uh, late 80s, early late, 90s. Late 80s, yeah. early 90s, yeah. Um. So you kind of came up in the, in the same kind of world that I did when it comes to technology. You remember when we didn't have video games. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. It, it, they, the kids nowadays really take it for granted that, well, there's nothing to do. I'll just play a video game. We didn't have that option. No, no. Uh, when there was nothing to do, it was time to go outside and figure out what you were going to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I remember uh, uh, my neighbor, uh, there was a kid about my age who lived in the house directly behind ours, and uh, he got a Pong system. Oh. Uh, you know, not, it, it was probably, you know, five years old, like garage sale kind of Pong system, but that was really the first video game system I ever played on. I think it was for a lot of people our age. Of course, the first one I personally owned was the Atari 2600. Yeah, yeah. The first one we had was the TI-99. Oh, wow, that's a, uh, that was a was, fun system. Which was a fun system. I uh, got to play with BASIC on that because yeah. it had a keyboard as well. 
Um, but then we eventually got the uh, the Atari twenty six hundred. The one that I never got, I have it now because I've got a, a pretty extensive video game collection that are packed away, and I never get to see them. Uh, was a ColecoVision. God, I wanted a ColecoVision when I was a kid. Now that was the one that had like the keypad on the yes. little toggle as well. Yeah, yeah, though those were great. I had a and it came. Friend. It shipped with Donkey Kong, and the version that came with that system looked almost identical to the arcade version of donkey kong and that's the that's why i wanted it yeah yeah and it did the colors yes because that was just looked great yeah Yeah. and the atari 20 i like the 2600 i mean i own probably 50 games for it all told and and i don't know how i ever got that many games because we never had much money growing up and they weren't cheap no, they weren't cheap, but and most of the games sucked, though. I mean, <laughs> they just sucked. I, I, you know, do you realize how many hours I probably wasted playing the horrible version of Pac-Man, which I am quite sure led to a lot of cases of epilepsy. The way it kind of blinked and oh yeah, absolutely, uh, it was terrible. I, I, we had Pac-Man. Uh, we followed it up with the Ms. Pac-Man later on. That yeah. was much more fun to play, but uh, the the Pac-Man game was was pretty bad on the twenty six hundred. It's kind of weird now that. Basically, arcades really don't exist anymore outside Japan. But it used to be if you wanted to play a really good video game, you had to go to the arcade. The home consoles just could not compare. No, there was no there was no comparison. And, I mean, and it's exactly the opposite now. Well, well, it's exactly the opposite in that the arcades can't compare to what you can do at home, especially when you consider the sheer amount of uh, stuff that's available there. Um, in terms of you know, like the games that you're going to play take a lot longer to play than than they used to in the arcade days. So I still play video games, but not the way I used to. And my tastes have changed a lot. Obviously, um, I, I you know honestly, I find I I play more video games on the iPad recently because it's just easier. You click a button, you play for five minutes, and you and you quit. But that's more like to me the arcade of the yesteryear, more than it is the home console of today. Right, like you're going to Aladdin's castle with a buck fifty. Right, that's that's what you had, and that's going to last you of actual game time five minutes. Right, right, maybe maybe if you're unless you're something. really good at Gra- Dragon's Lair. <laughs> right, you, you might get half an hour out of a buck fifty, but right. yeah, yeah. I mean, my my gameplay. It's actually kind of changed a lot, um, and it's changed a couple different times. Um, like, you know, I, I morphed into Nintendo like everybody else, mm-hmm. and that was really the introduction to gameplay that took longer than you were just going to sit there and play. Right. It wasn't repetitive, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's Mario, and you've got to jump this, and you got to do this, and there's a hidden thing to do here, and you collect the coins, and you got to rescue the princess. There was some thought into it. You, you you know, you play for a while, you leave the game paused, you come back the next day after yeah. school, you pick it back up Do you again. remember the games that they would give you the code? Oh, yeah. And if you enter the code in, you can pick up like, where you left like off? Like Punch-Out, where oh. you could you could get the code, and, and you'd be able to start back up again. Or oh, that, I thought that was... I, didn't, I never thought it would get better than that. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> awesome. I think you could do that in some, some of the Castlevanias, too. Yes. But, uh, yeah, and, and you know, that was, like, the introduction to gameplay longer than you were just going to sit there and play. And then, uh, uh, you know, I graduated from that into the PlayStation and the N64, and that was really when I discovered uh, uh, realistic driving games. And I just got so hooked in, in realistic driving games. Gran Turismo. Oh, yeah, those were great in the day. Actually, they still are. They still are. They're still fantastic. And, and They're almost too realistic for me now, though. Well, and that's what I really like about it. It turns out that... You know, I 
I, I played a lot of Gran Turismo. I played a lot of Gran Turismo. Right. Um, and and it, in the in the simulation mode, and what I realized after I'd been playing for a while was. I'd actually started to learn things about cars. Oh, really? Like, like I, I all of a sudden I was thinking things like, "Wow, I, I mean, like I, I'm driving along. I wish I had more camber on the left hand side because <laughs> I'd be able to take this turn a little bit better." Or the gear ratio on this is off a little bit because I'm, I'm obviously short shifting in third because of this. And it struck me like, why do I know this? Yeah, I had this weird experience where I, I because I've been playing so much Gran Turismo, ESPN was on and and they were showing a race and. I knew the track. Yeah, because you played like, it. That that track, that's the Nuremberg Ring. Like, I know this track. I know what these drivers need to do to get around here. It was a really strange and sort of surreal experience where this, um, well, this uh, you know, virtual reality that I'd been in actually corresponded to something real. I don't know if it was Gran Turismo or another game, but on one of the most recent uh, American Top Gear, and I actually like the British version better, but the American one is really starting to grow on me. It's getting better. It's getting better. It's getting better. They race against Tanner yeah, on the real track, and they play it on a video game. And some of the scenes were just, holy crap, that's a video game? And I'm into video games, and I was still, holy crap. Yeah, it was actually hard to tell in that episode. I just caught that episode the other day. It was hard to tell sometimes which ones were the video game cuts <laughs> and which ones were the real track cuts because they were so good. They weren't playing Grand Turismo. I don't remember what game It was some playing. game, yeah, but yeah. It, it was so realistic. And I thought, what's the next generation of game consoles going to look like? And and I've talked about this on Tech Fan in the past. As good as the, the PS3 is right now and the Xbox 360, and they're fantastic consoles. I've got them both, and I love them both. But the iPhone 8, if you look at the progression of the speed on the iPhone, or mobile devices in general, will have that much power by the time iPhone gets to 8. And that's only in three years. Right. I, I, I think You're going to have console-quality games I don't want to play something that's that realistic on my iPhone or even necessarily my iPad. I, I have a big TV for that. But I totally see the the time coming very soon that, look, I, I spend a lot of time in hotels because of this job. You occasionally have to go and stay in hotels because of the job. I can totally see having my iPhone with all my games on it streaming to my hotel television and I've got all my games just like I would at home and using the using the actual phone as the controller yes. or or the interface for the game as much as I like the iPhone and the iPad they really don't compare when it comes to a physical controller in my hand with two yeah, joysticks and I agree a button because you, you have to look at it it's it, it's not only that you have to look at it it's that there's no feedback to your hands right I mean, part of what makes the controller such a really great interface is that at a certain point it fades away. Yeah, you don't even realize it. R two and you right. know left stick or anything like that. You're just doing the motions, and you you can't get that on the iPhone. It's just there's not enough tactile feedback on the screen or in the tilting of it or whatever to to let it fade into the background. Right. I didn't I didn't actually plan on talking about video games this much on the show, but like I told Frank. And I and I asked him yesterday if he'd come on Tech Fan. I said I have no idea what we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. We'll so just talk. This is we'll just talk. So, uh, in that vein, we're going to take a break from talking for a minute. We're going to drop in a commercial for the, I don't know, one of the other shows here on the MyMac Podcasting Network, and then we're going to come back, go back in time a little bit, and talk to Frank about how he got into technology and what does it really mean to be a senior engineer. 
We'll be right back. Hey, Gaz, time to record our latest promo. Uh, hang on, I'm just finishing my For Mac Eyes Only segment. Come on, we need to spread the word about the MyMac.com podcast. I know, I know. I'm just touching up my review for the Mac Review Cast. We need to get it out there that we discuss Mac news, rumors, new products, old products. We tell everyone about the great new info available at the MyMac.com website. Uh, uh, hold on, I'm tweeting about my chit-chat across the pond with Allison on the NoSillaCast. We need to tell the listeners about the other MyMac family of podcasts and what fun we have on our show not to mention the great software picks we have every week uh, wait i'm dashing off an email to my international mac podcast cohorts about next week's show hey we have a weekly show too i'm surprised you have time to squeeze in the mymac.com podcast into your schedule uh, hang on i just have to update my website i don't have time for this okay guy let's do it guy i'm ready when you are guy guy Oh, well, the MyMac.com podcast, talking about the Mac and having a good time doing it. So Tim Robertson is still here in uh, Mac Specialist in the Chicagoland area, talking with Frank Lambert. So, Frank, you were a senior engineer at Mac Specialist. You obviously uh, worked your way into this role um, from what age? I mean, at, at what age did you think technology is kind of the way I'm going to go? So, um, it's kind of a long story. Uh, hey, it's a long podcast. Great. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I'll, start, I'll start at the beginning, and then we'll skip ahead real fast. Um, so, my father and, and my mother were both uh, public high school teachers. Uh, and so, they were you know, definitely interested in education and definitely interested in making sure that their children got educated. And one of the things that struck my dad right away was... I need to get a real computer in this house mm. because it's going to come up real fast where my son is going to say, I need to do the flamgen rod on the right. receiver core, and he's not going to know what that means. So he got a Tandy, a TRS-80, and uh, uh, got Which was a great – the TRS-80 was a fantastic computer. Oh, it really was. And he had one of the ones that was the uh, quote-unquote portable yeah. where the keyboard locked into the front of the screen yeah. and you could pick it up and carry it around. Great, great machine. Um, and built like a bullet. I mean – Like a tank. <laughs> as much as I like computers nowadays – I, I got to be a little honest. I think those old computers were, as simplistic as they were, were much more built to last. They were almost bulletproof. I mean... I think that, I mean, the cost of them at the time, yeah. in comparison to, to sort of the cost of them today, yeah. they had to be something that was going to last, or you were going to complain. You know, you were never coming back to a company if they provided well, you. Well, you buy a computer, when you, when you bought a TRS-80, they knew you were going to have it for five, six years. This isn't something you're going to replace in two years or three years. That's kind of the mentality of the PC industry, Apple and Dell and HP. You buy a new computer from them, they figure you're going to replace it in three years. That's that not point, the case back then. I don't think there was a concept of lifespan. No. I mean, it was, you're buying this and you're hopefully going to have it forever. Yeah. You know, and, and you tried to make the best decision you could at the time, and there wasn't a lot of options. Re regardless, he had this TRS-80, and he got into that and um, started to, you know, learn how to word process on a computer. And, and it was important that uh, we ended up learning how to do that. And at some point um, in that whole process... He felt like the TRS-80 was not the right answer and decided uh, there was an education discount on Apple computers, and he got us a uh, an Apple 2GS. Yeah. And that was a fantastic computer as well. It really was a fantastic computer, and that was the one that he was like, 
okay, Frank, sit down. <laughs> Here's AppleWorks. Let's get going. And, uh, and, and got me started there. Uh, and then to, uh, to, to jump ahead, uh, when I was in college, I, um, had, I had always had Apple computers. Um, I had just gotten this brand spanking new G3, um, and I'd really struggled with the decision of, do I need the G3 tower or do I get the iMac? And, well, I don't know. Computers are supposed to be beige. I don't. I don't know about this color <laughs> stuff. I don't know about what's this. Yeah, that G three tower, that last beige G three tower, almost wasn't a G three. I mean, it had more to do with like the six hundred four architecture than. Oh yeah, it was like it was like the ninety five hundred with a little add on addition. Yeah, yeah, on the side of it, it really was just that that sort of uh, uh, generation. It was just the next evolution of that. Yeah, I went with that machine and and. Uh, at the time, I, I was uh, uh, reading this uh, book, uh, Cryptonomicon, mm-hmm. um, Neil Stevenson, and he was talking about this thing called Phoenix in there because he was too afraid to actually call it Linux because he yeah. didn't want people to, to yell at him when he got stuff wrong. Um, and I said, this book was – it was very important to me that I, I figured out what was going on in this book. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's what I need. I need Linux. Like this Mac OS 8 thing, it's not getting the job done. Yep. I'm going to – figure out how to install Linux on this G3. And there really wasn't a lot of opportunity to do that. And I broke that machine so many times <laughs> just trying to get Linux installed on it. I mean, literally, I would be calling my dad at 3 o'clock in the morning in tears. I, I've broken it. It's gone. My, all my schoolwork is gone. Everything is gone. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this. I just, I'm driving myself crazy trying to do this. And he would just have to talk me down a little bit. But really breaking and fixing that computer so many times in such a short amount of time, I realized, you know what, I'm I'm kind of good at this. Like <laughs> At this point, I'm, I, I, I've yet to break it to the point where I can't get it back. And, and that was really when I realized technology is my thing. Like, I really like... It's very similar to me, actually. Yeah. I, I was breaking my own computer so often that I was, in a way, in... I mean, remember, this is... Pre, I mean, the internet existed, but not the way it does today. Yeah. Um, I would break it in a way that I had to figure out without any help because all the books were already dated by the time they were printed, so that was no help to me. Um, I had to invent ways to, to figure it out to, to fix it, and I lost my fear of computers at that point. And, then, and I bet something similar happened to you. After a while, people started asking you questions. Yeah, yeah. It turned into a situation where there was this there was this small online community of people who were really struggling to get uh, a Linux comp- kernel to compile for for their G three architecture, and and we somehow got together on on uh, you know like Usenet yep. and and got to the point where where. Other people were coming into this Usenet channel to ask us questions like, okay, so uh, I've done this, and now the floppy drive doesn't work anymore. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure that... You know, you you didn't put the cable in because that's the you know it's getting power and it's spinning up, but it's not it's not actually doing anything. The cable's unplugged and turned into this thing where yeah, I mean people were you became the experts by default because there was there was no other place to turn at yeah. that point. That yeah. that same thing happened to me. I was getting questions from people about. With problems of that I never even thought of, I didn't have the same programs, I didn't have the same hardware they did, but I would give them advice on best guess, and 
nine out of ten times I was right. And I thought, I, I don't think I can learn in school what I know here. I don't and, think there was a facility to learn in school uh, like yeah. what you were doing. I mean, you had to just get in there and, and literally sort of in the traditional sense become a hacker where you were yeah. just – you were taking the only tools you had, which were very basic, very machete-like tools, yeah. and you're hacking into this and seeing what happens and then putting the pieces back together. Do you together think that mentality again? exists today for a I lot of so. Do you think so? I hope so. I, I don't know because I'm at an age now where I, I don't have the time to – to break fix my own stuff, <laughs> you know. Right, right. I've got other things. I've got kids. I've got a mortgage. I've got a job. Hell, I've got this podcast. Um, I don't have the time to do that anymore. But I don't know if people are still doing that, or are these machines so much a an everyday part of life, a commodity that they don't even think about breaking them to see how they're working inside. Well, I don't know that so much anymore. People are into the the sort of hardware aspect the way they used to because it's pretty. It's pretty easy to just go out and, and even if you're building your own computer, right. you get a bunch of components. They all say they work together. You slap it all together. You put the power cord in, and it boots up. You know, And if you've got a Windows disk or a Linux disk, you can get an operating system on there. And that's all pretty simple. I think the, the really interesting stuff is happening in, in ways that people can communicate together. I think Minecraft, in a lot of ways, I mean, and I know Minecraft's been talked to death, and I don't really want to talk too much about it, but... We haven't really talked about it on the Tech Fan Podcast, but... The cool thing about Minecraft is how user-driven it is. And if you want to set up a Minecraft server, the, the instructions aren't very clear on what you need to do and how you need to do it. So you have to kind of go out there and experiment. And and I know I know a couple different guys who are who are really into this Minecraft thing, and they put together their own Minecraft server. And all of a sudden, they're coming to me asking me questions like, hey, you know... I've got this server, and I'd really love it if people could get access to the desktop so they could download the Minecraft server <laughs> update, and I don't have to. How can we do that? And, and I mean, they're all of a sudden thinking about using this technology in a way that they hadn't considered before. So you're thinking it's more software-driven, but purposely software-driven, i.e. the community rather than... Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know... It, you get you get your foot in the door by okay I'm just going to host this server right and then you open that up to some other people and those other people bring ideas to you and all of a sudden you're like I don't I don't really know how to do that I, but I want to right and you go and you seek out how you can do these things how you can make the whole server's infrastructure and the setup become more extensible become more user driven and I think it's those kind of things that 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 hacker mentality has moved into. It used to be if you got in front of somebody else's Mac, they had just a ton of custom icons. They had some kind of a crazy desktop going on. Um, you don't see that anymore either. I mean, the Macintosh hard drive on the desktop is that's it looks the same on everyone's computer. I don't even see people changing icons anymore. I, there's still a, a, a group of people out there who's interested. But it's so in doing much that. smaller than it, it is used a to much be. smaller group. I mean, I remember some of the software like uh, Copeland, and it would make your OS seven computer look like the Copeland operating system, which was never released. Right, right. Or or there were like the different skins you could do to make it look like B. Right. Yeah. Or, or any of that stuff. Um, I, I, you're right. I don't see that as much anymore. I think that that there are certain 
there's a certain group of people out there who are interested in making their computers um, sort of a personal statement. Um, but I think there's a bigger group of people who are interested in making their computers only usable by themselves. And they come up with... Or they're using the computers to make a personal statement, but it's what they're doing with it, not the computer not itself. Not the computer itself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I Obviously, it's a good thing from a company like Apple standpoint. You just look at their profits. That computers and the iPhones and the iPads are becoming more of a community or a, more of a... Um, commodity rather than it's a geek crowd so that's good but i don't know i kind of feel like in in some respects we've lost something along the way that there's a different mentality that's less risk takers well let's see what happens when you do this this and this oh crap i broke it i'll fix it out we'll figure it out so i still um i still see a lot of this but it's in a totally different community um uh I'm still a very big Linux person. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy Linux. I keep a Linux box or two at, at my house just because I, I, I like playing with it. But what I realize when I'm sitting in front of my Linux machine is that I spend 98% of my time in front of that machine tweaking it. Yeah. I want my icons to look exactly like this. Nope, that's not quite right. Let's do this other one. Okay, that's closer to what I want, but now I need to do this other thing. I'm tweaking all the time. I never actually do anything. Right. And that's sort of that vein. Um, I mean, in the Linux world, you can run... There's hundreds of different little, literally windowing clients. Like, not just how you make your windows look, but different applications to actually make windows show up on the desktop. And and you can choose from this huge variety of these different um, uh, windowing tools, and, and you can get lost in that sea and that's so where you think you that's this. where that community has yeah. gone yeah because i sure. think most mac users at this point aren't those people anymore no i think that the mac users at this point have they want to open the laptop and just do what they're doing and close it and then go back to watching football i think that the mac has turned into a productivity tool yeah. and people want to be productive when they're in front of their mac as opposed to they want to spend the time to make the Mac productive. They don't have to do that anymore. It just is. You, you open it up, and you can get stuff done right away. So a lot of people have commented on the fact, and, and David absolutely hates it, that now when I type, when I'm at my home computer, they can hear it clacking in the background. And yeah. just to set the record straight, that's your fault. Yeah, that's my fault. I uh, I really have a, a, a sick love for the uh, IBM Model M keyboard. And it fell off my radar for many years until I noticed it sitting on your desk one day, and I was like, oh. Yeah, there's really no experience quite like sitting in front of that Has Model anybody M here actually went up to your keyboard and went, holy crap, in a good way? Um, uh, well, other than you, uh, not not really. Uh, unfortunately, the, the guy who shares the office with me has to hear it all the yeah, time, and yeah. I'm sure it's not his favorite thing in the world. But it's uh, it, it's one of those... You either it, get it or you don't. Yeah, and it goes back to that idea of the real early computers where you didn't... This wasn't equipment that was designed to die in, in two years or right. three years. This was equipment that was designed to last forever. That that keyboard is a tank. It literally has a steel slab in it that everything else is based around. It'll it'll last forever. It'll outlive me. Yeah, probably. And, and that is something that I miss in computers today. I it, it wasn't so much the keyboard itself. It was the tactile feel of it 
when I'm using it because I look at the Model M not as, wow, it's really cool, vintage, um, and it's going to last forever. I looked at it as I can type so freaking fast on that computer keyboard because that's what I remember. Yeah, because it, it gives back. It, it does. It doesn't just... I don't have a Model M. Well, I technically I do because it was designed by IBM. They sold that that the keyboard division to Lexmark. Lexmark licensed it out to another company, and it's from that company that I got mine, which is an actual Mac keyboard. It has the Mac everything on there, the the icons. The I mean, it's a Mac keyboard, but typing on your computer and typing on this one, well, laptop uh, keyboard, they're what twenty five, thirty years apart yeah, in age. Yeah. Feels exactly the same. Yeah, and that that buckling spring technology is it's just awesome. It's awesome, I, and. I know a lot of people don't like the sound, and uh, but some people are starting to get it when they hear it in the background. Tim's doing something. He's yeah. going to say something because yeah. he just looked something up. Yeah, exactly. And when I listen to the shows back, I like that sound. I do, too. It's I, kind of, it harkens back. You it know? does. I mean, you know, the Model M really was a... IBM thought that they were never going to be able to use keyboards that were flat. They didn't give anything back to the person who was typing on it because the people who were going to be typing on these were people secretaries. who were using secretaries. They were using the Selectrics. Yep, and that's where that keyboard came from. They tried so hard to recreate that Selectric feel. I think they did it. I was never a very good typist. I took typing classes in junior high. I passed it, but with like a D minus. I mean, I was terrible. It wasn't until I started becoming more of a professional writer that I started typing and I immediately migrated back to my typing classes, which was the Selectric keyboard on an IBM typewriter. Right, it, and it feels it feels more comfortable. Well, they did a lot of research, IBM did, when they were building those keyboards. I mean, they really knew the ergonomics of how people are going to be sitting there and where their hands are going to be resting and why you put the little nubs on the keys on the F and the J and... And where you know the QWERTY layout because they were designed for people who were typing hundred word hundreds right. of words a minute. It was for work. Yeah, yeah, and they needed to make it so that those people could be as productive as possible. For people who don't remember, um, just just to point this out, the Selectric was a great typewriter in that you there was no mechanical connection between the key that you pressed. And then the actual letter that showed up on the paper. There's a little ball that uh, was fitted in there, and it right. would twist and turn and, and uh, go and, and snap against the the it was paper. And pretty cool to watch. It was too. it was really cool to watch. But it, typists were used to the kind of thing where there was a mechanical connection, and they felt that they needed to give some sort of tactile feedback of you have now struck the. The key and, and and that letter will show up on the paper and and that's where that whole buckling spring thing comes from and and it still works even though there's no longer this ball that's striking paper right. it's still just as satisfying it's still just as much okay I know that that the key is struck at this point and I can move on to the next one. Do you think? And I've said this on, on a past tech fan. I I think the keyboards are terrible nowadays. I really do. I don't think any one company has really said. You know what? Let's really put some time and effort in making a great keyboard. As much as I like the Apple computers, uh, especially the the laptops, we sell them. We service them. I love these machines. I don't like the keyboard. I don't think they're conductive to long-term writing. The last good keyboard that I think I've really experienced... Apple uh, Extended. uh, (laughs) The Apple Extended is great. Um, 
I think that IBM in their um, in their ThinkPad series of laptops, oh, yeah, um, right before they ended up selling that off to, uh, to Lenovo, they uh, those keyboards were were about the best that were available. Yeah. They were still the plastic, um, you know, scissor keys, but I, they were hmm. they were much better. I would probably say the uh, Wall Street and the Lombard PowerBooks, the G3s from Apple. The black those, ones the with the black brown ones, keyboards. Those were good. They, they felt good. The front of the computer kind of dipped down a little bit. It was slanted. It was a good typing computer. I uh, I agree with you. I, I I'm I'm a little annoyed with that line um, as that's the only computer that's ever caught fire literally while it was in my lap. <laughs> so so it has sort of a bad taste in my mouth yeah, from yeah. from looking down. Lap. Holy cow! I'm on fire. Yeah. Um. But whole new meaning to lap dance. Exactly. Yeah. Whole new meaning to lap dance. Um. But those were good keyboards too. Uh, prior to that, I mean, like when you're looking at the oh, old five twenties or oh, yeah, the blackbirds and yeah, they're terrible. Those, they were terrible. Yeah, terrible keys. And you know, I, I'm going to point this out. I've got a uh, uh, a little laptop here, and it's an Apple, and uh, I like the Airs. And I bought this computer, quite honestly, to be my typing computer. And when you hold it up next to my full screen or my full keyboard on the 15 inch. It looks very similar. You think, well, if, if I'm good at typing on the 15-inch, I should be good at typing on the MacBook Air. I'm not. I am constantly missing keys on here. I don't know what it is. Maybe I just haven't spent enough time typing on it. But I bought this as a writing machine. And what's holding me back more than anything else, quite honestly, Frank, is the keyboard. Uh, look at the escape key. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot chiclet. of optical illusions that's going on on that keyboard to make it look like the other keyboard, but it but is demonstrably smaller. I think the the air. There's another factor going on in the air, and I, I've used actually that exact air for for a week. I tested it out, and what I noticed was the screen is heavier than the actual um, area where the keyboard is, right. than the bottom part, and that tends to have if you're actually using it in your lap which the air keeps cool enough and that's can, why i bought it, that, it that's where i type the best it tips back you're yeah. you're not just pressing the keys down you're actually pressing the whole laptop you're down. holding it down as you're typing and that actually impacted my uh of, you know my typing ability i was yeah. less accurate because i don't know if it's that. because of the spec case i have on here or not it, it could very well be that. Maybe no, I should I've, take I've that No, I've tried up. them without the spec cases. Yeah. It doesn't really make any difference. You're adding the same amount of weight to the bottom as you are to the top yeah. with those. And I like the computer, don't get me wrong, but it's not the typing computer I thought I was buying. Yeah, and I think that's kind of been, I mean, to, to sort of take it around to a different spec or a different area, that's kind of the problem with the netbooks. I mean, the, there was so much promise of netbooks a yeah. couple of years ago. You know, you're going to get a netbook, and it's going to be small, and you're going to carry it everywhere, and it doesn't really matter because it's a $200 computer. If it drops on the ground, it's 200 bucks. Who cares? The problem is, is that they're too small. They're yep. too tight. You don't want to be hunched up typing, and that's the only natural position is pull your shoulders in and bring your elbows up, and you're typing in a really awkward place. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Keyboards have been around for, what, 100 and... I don't know, 110 years? A really long time. Yeah. We still haven't come up as a, as a society with something better to write with. The keyboard is still it. So I, I, I feel 
let me let me just explain a little bit. Uh, I I actually do enjoy the Android products. Mm-hmm. Um, I I carry an Android phone and an iPhone with me all the time. Um, I love my Android phone, and I think one of the coolest things that happened on the Android phone was you could get a version of graffiti, the old Palm graffiti, and replace your on-screen keyboard with graffiti. And that actually really works. Does it? I mean, I had a Palm... Because graffiti didn't work very well. (laughs) I had a Palm Palm 5, and it was not Yeah, I I had a bunch of Palms way back in the day, so I knew how to write in graffiti. But to be fair, that was... Many years ago, at and, least. And let's five. be honest; it, it probably wasn't the handwriting recognition software. It was probably the the speed of the processor and available RAM, and it really was struggling to keep up. But that's really the closest thing I think I've encountered since the keyboard as an input device, which makes sense, and it makes more sense today, I think, than it's made in the past. Because on your phones or whatever, when you bring up the on-screen keyboard. You lose a good fifty percent of your available space. Absolutely. With graffiti, you lose maybe thirty percent, but you don't lose anything in your ability to actually input text. Interesting. And you can go so fast. I was getting up to thirty words a minute in graffiti with my finger. That's pretty good. I went out and bought a stylus just because I was so enamored with this. I got up past thirty words a minute. I could really fly on it, and and it wasn't taking up as much screen real estate. I think it's. This is something that people need to look at again. While the keyboard is clearly the most efficient way mm-hmm. to input text into a digital device, it, we're moving past that. If we're in the post-PC world, we really need to look at... Uh, we we're really not need to look in post-PC. Im- it's still PC. It's just the evolution. The, the evolution of the PC seems to be moving down the road of there aren't any physical keyboards. And... That might mean looking at some new way of inputting text. And while I'm not here saying graffiti is the answer, I'm here saying it's it's a path that should be followed. So with that, we're going to take our last break. And when we come back, Frank and I are going to talk about the future of computing and why, why uh, everyone out there should buy tinfoil hats. Or probably make your own. They're pretty easy. Yeah, it's not hard. From miles, miles below the earth. Below the earth. To the summits of the highest mountains, across and below the oceans, in remote parts of our planet's rainforests, and into outer space. Oh, well, you're good at one night. Explorers Podcast is here from 66south.com. Final segment of uh, Tech Fan number 46. Uh, before we get back into it with Frank like to get some feedback from you guys. The easiest way, of course, is to send an email. It's simply feedback at mymac.com. That'll come directly to me. I'll share it with David or any other guests if you want to send something to Frank. Um, say how good he was on the podcast and that obviously Frank should be podcasting himself at this point. <laughs> we'll get into that another time. Uh, feedback at mymac.com. We do have a phone number, so pick up your iPhone, hit pause while we're talking. Well, wait a minute. Don't do it yet because I haven't said the phone number. After I say the phone number, hit pause on the podcast. Switch over to the phone app. Isn't that weird? It's a phone. phone. It's, it's got the an app. app. Yeah. The app is the phone. And dial 1-801. Hey, the guy with the ter- Tercel isn't paying attention. Hey. Hey. Okay. Uh, 1-801-9000. <laughs> 
938-5559. You know, I've been podcasting since pretty much podcasting was invented, Frank. And one of the first feedbacks I ever got that really kind of showed me what podcasting could be, what really kind of drew me into it after the fact, was I got an email from somebody who had listened to the podcast um, on his way to work in London, taking the train. And he listened to it between the time I recorded it and when I woke up the next morning. Because up until that point, it was almost like I was podcasting into a vacuum. I knew people were listening. I was getting feedback and stuff. We were running some contests, and you know people were entering the contest. But there was something about that email that someone in another country that's you know 6,000 miles away just was going listening, about his life. just going about his life, going to work, listening to, at the time, me and Chad Perry, um, what we were talking about yesterday. And he was doing that while I was sleeping. And I don't know, something about that really kind of sparked my imagination about podcasting and what podcasting could be. Um, but it's not just the podcasting itself. It's the world that we live in, this technology world, that's within the last 15 years have changed things more than it has in the last 15 before. It's accelerating. It is definitely accelerating. And it's not, and, and it, yes, it's being driven by these computers that we all use, but it's the entertainment industry, it's the music industry, it's, we're, you finished reading a book last week that, and you told me about it, I'm reading it on my iPad. Now, I didn't physically go out and buy a book. It's just, it's on the screen, and I'm right. reading it. And you don't even think about that this is not a physical book. I'm reading this on a screen. You, you're completely lost in the story. So I'm kind of curious to get your input on where do you think all of this is going? Are we there? Is there a destination, or is it constant evolution? It's definitely constant evolution. Yeah. I mean, what the world we're moving into is a world where more and more things that you will interact with are going to become smart. And by that, I mean they're going to have processors and they're going to have memory and they're going to be doing things. And it's going to let the world interact with you better. Um, I mean, we've certainly, you know... I, I'm hoping the world doesn't turn into the minority report. I don't right. want ads targeted right at me right when I walk in the store. But I think we have to just realize that that is, in fact, where we're going. It may not be that horrible, but it's going to be that way. And it already is in some regards. In some regards, it really is. In other regards, I mean, we're at this point where so much more of the world is going to get so much smarter around us that um, we're going to have possibilities that just that just unthinkable even five years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it in a world where you can control in a world, in a where. world <laughs> where you can control the temperature of your house and when the lights come on from your phone from across the world. Yeah, it's I mean, amazing. That's, it's an amazing thing, and 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 that's There's where we're going. Apps on that you can buy for your iPhone that will literally start your car. Right, from anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world, or or apps that you can get that will, you know, help you save your energy costs um, by by having better control over when your house is heating and when it's cooling and what lights come on, and you can still have lights come on and, and go off. And this is in the future. This is right. This now. This is right now, and and but it's still it's still really marginalized. Yes. And, and I think that LED technology, uh, 
when it's put into place with smart devices where you can, you know, basically just program a light socket, nothing else. I mean, you're just programming the socket to say, you know, I want you to turn on um, with a 10-minute random variable at the beginning and a 10-minute random variable at the end for this duration of time while I'm out on vacation. It, it's going to look like somebody's in there. It's gonna, the light will turn on at six oh five one day and turn off at at eleven thirty two p.m. But the next day it'll turn on at five fifty eight and it'll go off at ten thirty. And it, and it, I mean it's not a pattern that that's really recognizable. You don't know that somebody isn't in there turning this stuff on and off. Right. And, and and while that's just you know sort of a very simple concept that over everything in your house is going to start to really do things. I I like this concept of these apps that you can get right now where you put your phone under your pillow and it registers your sleeping patterns and figures out how better to wake you up in the morning. Hmm. I mean, this is like like everybody I think can can relate to how much they hate their alarm clock. Sure. I mean, Imagine an alarm clock that's smart enough that it recognizes certain patterns in your sleep, that it wakes you up at the most optimal time. You will be less grumpy. I mean, imagine your day starting off better every day from really simple technology that, well, right now it's tied into phones. In a, in not that long of a time from now, it'll be in your pillow yeah. or in your bed. It's the bedside lamp. Right, and it, and it's going to help you, and it's you're going to be able to say, okay, well, I wake up better to light coming up brighter than I do to music, or I, I wake up better when the television turns on than I do if you know the radio turns on. I don't. You know, it's weird. I, I think a lot of people are like me in that I beat my alarm clock going off usually within a minute. I will wake up within a minute of that alarm clock before it goes off to turn it off so it doesn't go off. Exactly. And you have developed a a pattern. You've developed a circadian rhythm that allows you to do that because the only other option is the alarm goes off. That's annoying. If you didn't have to develop this um, defense mechanism, which is really what it is, and, and your alarm clock was smart enough to wake you up at a point where... You know, it was the appropriate time in your sleeping rhythm to wake up. You wouldn't need that. You would get that extra two minutes of sleep every day, and that might mean a huge difference in your world. Yeah, it's the small things. And and, and there are so many small things that we can that are still available to become better. That mm-hmm. that's the world I see coming in. I don't see us having these giant you know, liquid-cooled servers that are running out of the back of our refrigerators. Right. I see us having this huge network of tiny, small. smart mm-hmm. machines that all work together to form a, a, an ecosystem in your life that makes a lot of small things much better. I think the biggest drawback for the, that type of coming technology, and I think it's very significant is we still don't have the communication infrastructure to support that. For I'll give you a prime example. You 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 have an iPad. It's an it's a Wi-Fi only device. Correct. You can tether it to your phone. Yes. But let's say you don't and you go sit in your car at a parking lot at you know wherever. You can't get online. Communication networking should be just there it should be something that you don't even think about until we get to that point everything else is being held up 
it's just not going to happen until we get to ambiguous connection. Yeah, I agree everywhere. that I mean the the ubiquitous internet connection um, obviously is something that that holds back some of this technology. Um, We're not going to get there when the big money is still in your cable bill. It's right. still in. Right. We'll charge you an extra twenty bucks to tether. Well, and I mean, we're seeing this already. Um, uh, there are any number of people out there who the only internet connection they pay for is their phone. Yep. And and that phone connection gets tethered to a computer when it's needed. It gets tethered to an iPad when it's needed. And it's in your pocket all day long, and you've got it with you. And as long as you're in a good coverage area, you have that connectivity. It follows you around like a little bubble. Well, I mean, that's really just a, a bridge device until sure. there's a better ubiquitous system. It starts to give, you know, we can see the roadmap of where that's going. And that, I think, you know, can be easily accomplished in your house to start with, which is where I think, you know, we'll start to see a lot of this. And once you get your home where every little piece is talking to every other little piece because you've got Wi-Fi or whatever in your house, um, you've got your whole your whole home area covered with connectivity and all those pieces can talk to each other that's when we're going to start demanding as consumers that we can do that same stuff when we're not in our own little protective bubble of of constant connectivity we we look at this like this is the next problem that we have to overcome and yet people in africa are searching for clean water well and and I I understand that there there is a we have huge we have rich people divide. problems. We really have rich people. <laughs> we have America rich people has problems. rich people. We don't really have any more real real problems in this country. Yes, we've got ten percent unemployment, and that's bad. There's people struggling, and that's bad. But as a nation, we have rich nation problems. The what my hope is is that, and this is probably you know way too altruistic, but. If I know we, what you're going to say, but If the we way. get to the point where, where we've solved so many of our problems, we're problem solvers at heart. I'm a, I'm a problem solver at heart. If I don't have any problems to solve of my own, I look for other people's. That's the job I ended up taking. Yeah. I solve other people's That's problems. That's what an engineer does. And, and it, it, eventually it's going to have to come around to solving those other problems. Yeah. And, and there's really – if we've learned anything from, from just, let's say, Twitter – I mean, which is something that I thought was laughable a year ago, yeah. absolutely laughable a year ago, and today has demonstratively made a difference in global geopolitics. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's this just this tiny little web-based app that really, I mean, it's exploded communication in a way that nobody could think of. There's just as much room for some other little piece of technology that you know will take off that could make feeding Africa easier or that yeah. could make you know overpopulation um, uh, easier by, by allowing people to move geographically further apart but still stay connected in a way that makes them feel like they're part of an urban environment. Um, still, I mean, the, still rich people problems. Still rich people problems, but but I mean these are the, rich white people problems. Let's be honest, it's rich white people problems. <laughs> just keeping it real. Yeah, just keeping it real. Um, before we wrap up here, uh, I know that there are Mac users that listen to the show, which is probably like ninety eight percent of the people listening. Um, when they heard senior engineer, and he works for Mac specialist. Uh, do you want to explain what that entails as well as 
if there's an aspiring 19 year old listening to this thinking this might be a career that I would be interested in how to get from point A to point B wow. stay in school work hard no um, what <laughs> that's always the answer <laughs> that's by the always way. the answer um, which is why I have to give it uh, the what I do is I work at um, the higher levels of Apple technology uh, and when I say that I mean servers uh, Xans um, uh, communications between Apple devices and other um, directory services or whatever. So, I mean, it, it gets a little technical. I don't really want to get too technical. But um, really, uh, the the core of what I do is I help um, these, these high-level technologies get put in place where uh, people really need them. And while it may be daunting to, you know, just sort of open up some of these XAN PDFs and say... Wow, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know how or what, or I mean, it's it's easy to get lost in it. What really, what my job is is that my job is to come in and make sure these products work, and then and then make them accessible to the people who would need to use them, and, and invisible to those who don't need to use them, but they need to know how to use the services that these machines are providing. Exactly, uh, it's to it's to take the scare factor out of some higher technology concepts and put them into practice in such a way that the people can use them and be effective with it. And part of that is making sure that the systems work properly and they don't break down all the time. And part of that is translating out of technology speak and into regular person speak what these right. things do and how they do them. Um, personally, I mean, I got in this business um, from from the point of view of I started as a hardware repair technician and uh, you know I was turning screws on, on IMAX and uh, replacing hard drives replacing RAM, hard drives RAM sure. that whole thing and and building that into a skill set which would allow me to recognize when a problem is no longer a hardware problem and when it becomes a software problem and then troubleshooting those software problems to you know alleviate them and if you sort of stick in that path long enough, eventually you work your way up to some very high-level technological things. Without even trying. Just what? all of a sudden you're like, I, I know how to do these things, and I don't remember how I learned them. I just, it yeah. was the evolution of what I was already doing. Experiencing them, um, having having a mentor or having um, you know a facility by which you can experience these things in a fashion where it's not you know critical it's not right. life or death situation it's not you know we need 99.999% uptime getting a, an ability to start working into these technologies and then advancing the knowledge that you have um, that's that's really the key to it is is there's always a next step and there's always a next level and believe me when i when i got into this business of helping people out um, i I saw, you know, a, a server as a as a mountain, and it, it seemed like such a steep learning curve. That I mean, how am I ever going to be able to do this? And you do it, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and pretty soon that mountain is not as high, and you can look off and see the next mountain in the yeah. end. Yeah, okay, and it, it also helps if you're younger to find someone who is a step above you and learn from that person. Because I found. Going way back to just as, as an IT manager, most of the people in these industries that we work in, this, this tech world, are always willing to, to share in their knowledge, to, to give back, if you will. Not all of them, 
but the vast majority of them are. If you don't know something, they're happy to show you. Having a mentor or having somebody there that that you can use as a resource when you get in over your head is is really an important it's an important piece in the whole puzzle. And recognizing when you are in over your head. Yeah, you you have to you have to be humble enough to say I need help. Yeah. And that's that's a big deal for some people and and you, you, you get over it. Yeah. You know, everybody a lot needs of help. People listening to this may not realize I I can't tell you how many conversations we've had where a customer calls and we have no idea how to fix it initially we're like we don't know and we research it we look into it we experiment we come up with a solution now the customer is happy yeah it's you can't have all the knowledge all the time Part of part of being Thank in goodness this for tech Google. Yeah, is, <laughs> is having strong Google foo and being able to to find answers. But uh, more than that, it's you have to be able to differentiate between answers which clearly apply to the situation you're dealing with and answers which don't. I mean, if you just are are searching the internet for you know Active Directory is broken. That's not very useful to right. you. You're going to come up with with so many hits on that 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 being able to search through that for the stuff that's actually valid and appropriate for your situation it is going to take forever. You have to be able to narrow down your problems, and sometimes that means you have to know what you don't know, and that's hard. That's hard to do. So if they're Mac people and they want to kind of move in that direction are there any kind of classes or certifications that they should be looking into well yeah um there are there are apple um certification courses and apple training materials that uh are really designed to start working you up the rungs in terms of starting from the computer in front of you and moving towards dealing with servers and then moving towards actually setting up servers and then moving towards setting up systems of servers. Um, and it starts with uh, support essentials um, and and grows from there. Um, they, I, they change the name of the class all the time. Um, which, and especially with Lion coming out. Yeah, especially with Lion, it'll, it'll be changed again. But uh, there's there's basically, um, you know, sort of a 101, um, which is based on, you know, the computer in front of you and how do you do things on that computer. And then there's kind of a 201, which has traditionally always been the um, technical coordinator level, if you pass the certification, that helps you translate the knowledge that you have about the computer in front of you to servers that you would be connecting to or working with. And then from there, you have to grow the knowledge past that. Unfortunately, um, we're not going to have that certification level as an Apple-branded certification, but that's not going to mean people don't need to know this stuff. That's There's right. still going to be class materials. There's still going to be books about it. So... You know, while I may not know what it's called now, it, it's still going to be there. Um, and and those have traditionally been the the three hundred one and three hundred two, where you're learning about directory services and and uh, deployment skills, where you can tie lots of server systems together to create an overall structure for an organization to be able to better manage their technology. And of course, nothing beats simply getting your hands dirty. Nothing beats breaking the computer and fixing it over and over yeah. again as as a way in. I think that the way I look at my job, I look at my job as as really two things. Um, 
first of all, I get to help people every day. And that's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah. And I try to remind myself that, you know, I, I get to help people and that's a good thing. And helping people makes the world a little bit better place. The other thing that I, the other way I look at my job is that it is problem solving. It's, it's solving puzzles. And the great thing is, is that it's different puzzles every day. 16 year old Frank meets current Frank. What do you think the, do you think 16 year old Frank, other than it's like, holy crap, I, you know, 16 year old Frank really wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Yeah. And um, would look at being a systems engineer as as probably a good a good thing. Yeah, I think that sixteen year old Frank um, really didn't understand what a mechanical engineer was. Unfortunately, uh, now Frank does and realizes that wasn't the right path. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, sixteen year old Tim would be wondering where my lightsaber was actually. Yeah, the flying car. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. no, it was a lightsaber. It was a lightsaber. I, because it seemed like a real. I, I, I still can't imagine people flying cars. I mean, they're completely retards on the highway at 10 miles an hour in a traffic jam. Now put them up in the air above houses? Probably yeah. not a good idea. I mean, flying car just is a, <laughs> is a stand-in concept for all of that. But lightsaber, stuff. I always saw lightsaber as something that's kind oh, of viable. Oh, yeah, I something mean. that cuts through anything. <laughs> anything. That wouldn't be dangerous at all. It's, it, you know, oh, lost my leg. Just oh, a little crap. clumsy. Yeah. So with that, uh, we're going to wrap up episode number 46 of Tech Fan. I'll be back next week with David Cohen. The only reason he wasn't on this week is because, well, I'm not going to be home on Friday when David and I usually record this. Plus, he's coming back from Las Vegas, and there's a huge jet lag thing when you go at least that direction when you're going from the uk to las vegas it's a little bit easier to deal with jet lag but when you go back the other way it's really really hard yeah yeah so he needed a week's vacation and i was happy to give it to him and i'm really happy that you came on this week yeah thanks for having me on yeah and this isn't gonna be the last time people hear from me either i'm gonna make sure of that (laughs) so we'll see you guys next week